0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stats, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we welcome Donovan X. Ramsey to the show. Donovan is a journalist and author, and he's here today to discuss his debut book, When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. It's a poignant and thoroughly researched expose on the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s. It's told through stories of four affected individuals. I have to say this book was one of my most anticipated books of the year. I read it and it lives up to my own personal hype. So there you go, folks. Donovan and I talked today about politics and media during the crack era, the way that Donovan crafted this book and what he hopes to accomplish by sharing these stories. Remember, our book club selection for July is Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I'll discuss the graphic novel with Joel Christian Gill on July 26th. Quick reminder, everything we talked about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. And if you want more of The Stacks, you can join The Stacks Pack. It's just $5 a month. And if you join, you have access to our monthly virtual book club hangs, The Stacks Pack Discord, and The Stacks bonus episodes. You have the backlist ones and the ones that are coming out next. And this month, we're going to be discussing the HBO series Watchmen to go along with our book club episode on The Book Watchmen. So yes, you're going to want to join The Stacks Pack to hear all of that juiciness too. Head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join. Shout out to our newest members of the Stacks Pack, Kristen Hazel, Erica Simmons, and Kate Palmer. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Donovan X. Ramsey. All right, everybody. I am so excited. If you have been following me on Instagram, if you have been listening to this podcast, you have heard me talk about this book. It is one of my most anticipated books of the year. And guess what? It did not disappoint. Thank God. I am joined today by the author of When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era, Donovan X. Ramsey. Welcome to the Stacks. Hey,
1: Tracy. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm just so excited to have you. I... (sighs) I'm so grateful this book exists. So let me just start there. Thank you for doing this for us, for the culture, for the world.
1: Wow. No, thank you for saying that. I'm um the thing, you know, I I wrote the book that I set out to write. So it's like nice to see it exist in the world and you know, people get to experience it.
0: Uh, I love that. Okay. In about 30 seconds or so, just tell people what the book's about.
1: Okay. So the book is I call it People's History of the Crack Epidemic. It is both um, a chronicling of the rise and fall of crack, but also the, the lives of four people who were touched intimately by the epidemic. Um, and it's a book that it took me about five years to write. Um, I went out all over the country to the cities that were the hardest hit and interviewed hundreds of people. And I pulled together this story that really illustrates um, both the vulnerabilities that exist in our society that led to the crack mm-hmm. epidemic, but also the ways that we survived it.
0: Where did you get the idea for the book?
1: So I got the idea for this book because I, you know, am really a child of the crack era. I, I was right. born in 1987. I grew up in the 90s and in a neighborhood that was hard hit by crack. And, um, you know, my like earliest memories, you know, are of the, you know, guys hanging out on the corners and my mom telling mm-hmm. me to look away um, and mm-hmm. to mind my business. My earliest memories are of, you know, my first bike being stolen by an addict. Um, I mm-hmm. like, you know, lost the air in my tire and I was too scared to go home and tell my mom. And this guy was like, hey, I can fix that for you. So, <laughs> you know, I, I I gave him my bike and stood wow. there for hours and he never came back. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, you know, I, Grew up in that environment, but I was really sheltered from the environment mm-hmm, by my mm-hmm, mother, thank mm-hmm. God. And that just left me with tons of questions about mm-hmm. what exactly was happening and why it was happening to, to my community. And mm-hmm. as I got older, there you know, weren't any books. I was surprised that I actually tried to answer that question. So that's the book that I set out to write.
0: And then once you set out to write the book, how did you figure out how it would work, would work formally? And for people who don't know, sort of, I, sh- I should tell you how it's set up. Basically, Donovan is sort of writing four different stories of four different people who experienced the crack epidemic in different places in the country, and then also weaving in the history and sort of the politics of the time. The book is the books are not the same, but what I kind of compare it to is the warmth of other suns, where it's like you have these people who are journeying with us through this time period, but also Donovan is making sure that we have like the important information that maybe Kurt or Lini like wouldn't wouldn't tell us like they're not going to be like, so this is what Nixon was up to. So it's sort of a combination of like this. It's definitely narrative nonfiction, but it's a combination of like personal stories and then also like the bigger picture. So how did you figure out that that's how you wanted to do it?
1: You know, you got it exactly right. I stole Isabel Wilkerson's flow exactly that I oh, read. Oh, OK, OK,
0: OK. <laughs> that
1: I read The Warmth of <laughs> Other Suns and I thought, well, this is why you write a book, that this mm-hmm. is why you take this form, something of, of, of this length to give context to something that people think they understand. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw what she did with, you know, those three characters who kind of illustrated different perspectives. And I thought, well, how could I do this for a story as big as the crack epidemic? Um, And I, and I really tried not to like, you know, at one point I wanted to do the book entirely about Washington, DC as the nation's capital. And, but then I realized crack uh, hit, Neighborhoods in different cities at different times. It declined at different times. That it was sort of expressed in different Mm -hmm. ways, right? So, Mm -hmm. like on the West Coast in LA, you get Bloods and Crips and gang culture, and you know on the East Coast you get like Jamaican posse's and like Dominican dealers, and you know the story in DC is so political. So it seemed to me that you know in order to write something definitive, I had Mm -hmm. to kind of spread out and kind of make it kaleidoscopic you know, it was is was was the goal.
0: Yeah. And then how did you source your people? Um, you have, you know, a politician, you have people who were selling crack, people who were doing crack. Like, how did you decide, or I guess, what was the process to finding them? Or did you go in saying, like, I want to find someone like this? Did you go in saying, I know I want Kurt Schmoke? Like, how did you... Yeah. Figure out and like were there people that maybe you thought you were going to use? And then you were like, oh, this doesn't work anymore. Like this story is too repetitive to someone else's or something yeah. else like that.
1: You know, it was it was really really hard, Tracy. It was so like the task was I needed to find people who whose lives and experiences sort of demonstrated different perspectives of the crack epidemic. Right, right. So you know, like I knew that I needed to have a former addict. I knew that mm-hmm. I needed to have a dealer. I really wanted to have an elected official to kind of like illustrate that like policy perspective. Mm
0: -hmm, And I knew mm -hmm.
1: that I wanted to have someone who was related to an addict or a dealer because that's the experience of so many Black Americans is that you may have not been personally involved in the drug trade, but I think many of us love somebody or loved somebody Mm -hmm. that was involved. So that perspective needed to be there. And um, so it was, you know, that that was the mandate. And I traveled Mm -hmm. to the um, 10 hardest hit cities and I just, you know, went into barbershops. I went into hair salons. I went into community centers and I, you know, asked people questions and just talked about what I was doing. And there was this outpouring of stories Mm -hmm. and of experience. Mm -hmm. And um, I put out some open calls on Twitter and Instagram. And again, there was an outpouring. I realized Mm -hmm. that people were that these stories were on the tip of their tongues, that they, you know, were seeing sort of the conversations come back up, but they didn't feel like they had a chance to have their say. So mm. um, I ultimately settled on the four sort of characters that I have Lenny Woodley, a former user out of South Central LA, uh, Elgin Swift, whose father was an addict for many years out of New York, Kurt Schmoke, who's the former mayor of Baltimore. And Sean McCrae, who was a uh dealer out of Newark, New Jersey, I settled on them because one, they were willing to talk to me. Right. Two, they had stories that felt like they were representative of mm-hmm. the kind of folks that they were standing in for. And mm-hmm. they just, I mean, you know, when you read the book, you'll see like I just fell in love with them.
0: Yeah. You know, that they That's just so
1: clear. Felt like people that I knew. And um you know, they kind of just had that spark that we just vibe like that. So, you know, that's why they ended up in the book.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this then about, about the subjects that you ended up picking. I think like one of the things that's tricky about a book like this is that you end up, if you're talking to people who survive something like this with sort of like a rosier outlook on the whole situation, because if you were interviewing someone at the time, you know, like maybe they die, maybe they end up in prison. But in this case, 40 years after the fact, like we know from the beginning that they're at least in a place where they're comfortable, like talking to you and they have at least their life together to a point or they survived this far. And I'm wondering like how that affected sort of your storytelling or your approach as an author, trying to paint like a people's history, knowing that for so many people it, it ended very, very badly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, it was uh difficult a a difficult decision to make to sort of make the book entirely about these four people who survived it but you know ultimately i decided that the history that exists that was told by mainstream media mm-hmm. already had so much so much death and right. devastation mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. my book i i wanted to not necessarily correct that. Right. But to supplement it with these other stories of, of survival and also knowing that for for each of them, even within their lives and their stories, there are so many people who didn't survive. Right. So, you know, um, Sean McRae, for example, you know, was able to avoid, you know, any major jail time for the, you know, the fact that he was selling drugs for over a decade or so. But most of his friends got locked up. And a really good friend of his, you know, mad dog was 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 killed when he was a very young man. And, you know, Sean is still living with and dealing with the fallout of that, of the destruction of his community, the Hayes Homes projects. So, you know, even his story of of survival gives you windows into the devastation.
0: Right. Okay, one more question about this, and then I have many others. But how, like, this is a pretty formal question. But how do you decide who gets to talk when? Like, how do you decide, okay, because like, in the beginning of the book, we we hear a lot from Lini, and then we don't hear from her for a while. And I have my own assumptions about why that happens that way. But how are you as the author thinking about like, okay, in the early 1980s, like we really want to hear from Sean and like Sean's sort of our narrator throughout the whole thing. And Elgin sort of, you know, comes up a little more later. And like, what, is, what are the logistics of you figuring out who gets to say what, when?
1: Yeah. It was uh, a really hard book to write in terms of mostly around the structure. Right. Mm-hmm. So like I um, had, Done tons of reporting before and tons of writing before. So that stuff came a little more easily to me. But putting together a book of this length, it's over 400 pages, and weaving together first just the rise and fall of crack, but then the lives of these four individuals in different cities who never meet was right. re- like a really big and like ambitious task. Ultimately, what I had to do was to lay out all of their stories just chronologically. Mm -hmm. And to really figure out knowing that the meta history had to be sort of the spine of the book in that their stories should branch out from the meta history. So leading with whose story connected most at that time to what was happening in the larger story of crack. Um, And, you know, there are periods where, you know, because Elgin's the youngest, he doesn't appear for a while that everybody else's life sort of are, or or at least their story on that timeline begins. And his takes a little bit longer. And then Lenny literally because, you know, because she was actively using every day for a long period. There are huge swaths of time that she just doesn't remember. Right. Um, and That's because, what I thought. Yeah. You know, th- then also because so much of what she experienced was traumatizing and she was completely outside of her body for it she just doesn't remember. So, you know, in a way, I hope that it's effective because it represents the way that people like Lenny actually show up in the lives of people who know them, right? Is that Mm -hmm. she was there and then she disappeared. And Mm -hmm. then there are these little glimpses, right, of knowing that she's still alive and that she's still going through. And then she comes back a survivor. But, you know, that's the reality of it. And that was really hard for me to accept. And she and I you know, we did a lot of interviewing, a lot of talking, and I, you know, really tried my best to get memories out of her. And then ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, there were interviews that I did with people, you know, in her life that I thought could maybe fill in some of those holes. But then mm-hmm. I realized, no, you know, that like I think it actually is significant for the reader to like miss her yeah. during those chapters.
0: I mean, I definitely had that experience. I was like, where did she go? Where yeah. is she? Like, why are we not hearing from her? And it wasn't until she came back that I was like, oh, I think it's because she wasn't able to, to fully share that part of her life because she doesn't remember it or the memories are unclear or it all's jumbled together because of the drug use. Yeah. Um, okay. This is a very rudimentary question, but you do such a good job of explaining this in the book. What is crack
1: yeah, um, okay, so I will give you like the big grand metaphysical answer that yes. you know crack is a substance that um, came into American life in the early 1980s that completely upended urban communities and it became the reason for a intensified war on drugs that we're still recovering from, and it launched a lot of myths and really a culture war against Black and Latino Americans in this country. Crack is also the same exact substance chemically as powdered cocaine. It has, um, it was, its original name was freebase. And that's a chemical term for taking a compound like powdered cocaine and freeing its base from the other elements, which makes it smokable. So It's the same substance as powder cocaine. It has the same high as powder cocaine, which is um, euphoria and stimulation. Uh, Except like like anything you smoke, it goes to the brain directly. So it's a very quick high. It's very intense and it's short lived. And because of that, you saw a different pattern of use for crack users, which means that you are binging crack um, as opposed to, you know, uh, what other folks do with powder cocaine, which is, you know, have some and then you're just high for a while and you have a little bit more later. Um, I would liken it for anybody that that might be not like clear enough or to like an edible, like, like an edible, right? Like a, a sort of weed brownie, for example, versus mm-hmm. smoking a joint. A person okay. that, you know, consumes a weed brownie might think, hmm, I'm not high. No, that weed brownie had no effect on me. And then maybe 30 minutes, an hour later you're high for three hours. Whereas, you know, somebody that's maybe smoking a joint, you're going to get immediately high and you're going to have to keep smoking mm. a joint to stay high.
0: Um, Interesting.
1: You know, that like, uh, that's just the way that like, you know, chemicals work in our bodies. So, Got it.
0: Yeah. Um, but so freebase and crack are the same thing.
1: Freebase and crack are the exact same thing in terms of the the substance that's produced, that there was a different process for making it. Freebase was made with more volatile chemicals, things like ether, and that made it uh, really difficult to make. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the stories of people in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, blowing themselves up, trying to freebase, that's because they were using volatile chemicals. Um, I see. A little story that I'll share, though, is that um, in my research, I was told by several different sources that they learned how to make freebase from a handful of Bay Area college students. White mm. students at Berkeley who were cocaine enthusiasts that were mm-hmm. experimenting with it, you know, in the way people mm-hmm. experiment with drugs. Yeah. And that they, you know, took powder cocaine under this chemical process and they created freebase, And it became so popular in the Bay that, you know, I was able to track down a book published in the late 70s called The Pleasures of Cocaine. That was hmm. sold in independent bookstores and what they call head shops. So any place that you could buy like a bong basically. And that was one of the ways that it became really popular and spread throughout the Bay. And then hmm. to LA, right? That the that the knowledge follows the typical routes, right? Of like relationship right. and connection. So from the Bay to LA, to Seattle, to Portland, from hmm. LA to New York right? And then from New York, you know, up and down the East Coast, and then ultimately then into Middle America. But mm. um, that's sort of like one of the interesting stories about the origins of, of crack is that, it, you know, it seems as though it was Bay Area hippies that, mm. that created it.
0: Well, as a Bay Area native, I am so proud of our legacy. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I guess like, I knew, I knew that crack and cocaine were the same substance, right? Like, I feel like if you read the new Jim Crow, that's really hammered home in the like difference in sentencing. But one of the things that comes up towards the end of the book is about Obama's fair sentencing, uh, like where he reduces. It used to be a hundred and one disparity of crack to cocaine, a hundred. Sorry, opposite of cocaine to crack. Um, where you would get no, I'm sorry, the first time crack to cocaine, you get a hundred years for something that someone who did cocaine would get one or whatever. Right. Um. In Obama's fair sentencing, it's still an 18 to 1 disparity. So, is that fair? Is there a reason why it's 18 to 1? Like, is there anything about crack that is inherently more dangerous or more anything? Like, because wouldn't fair sentencing be one to 1?
1: Yeah. You would think, okay. right, that there's nothing. Okay. <laughs> that there <laughs> I thought was... I was missing something. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, is there? Well, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that just that law that came about in, um, I believe it was uh, 88, that it was uh, a reaction to the death of Lynn Bias. Lynn Bias mm-hmm. was a, um, a first round NBA draft pick out of the University of Maryland that got drafted to the Celtics. And um, the night of the draft, He overdosed on cocaine, not on crack. It turned out right that he was not smoking crack, that he had consumed large amounts of cocaine and he died. And uh, politicians in D.C. seized on it to create these laws that, you know, ultimately criminalized cocaine possession more than it did any other drug. And yes, you're right. It was a 100 to one sentencing disparity. So you got, you know, uh, 100 times the amount of time that you would get for powder cocaine. For crack, that was just arbitrary, right? That they one-upped each other to that. They were, you know, it should be 10 to 1. It should be 20 to 1. And they settled on 100 to 1. Um, (laughs) As you do. You know, it's like, you know, why not just, you know, kind of it? And then, you know, (laughs) uh, during the Obama administration, all of his sort of criminal justice reform efforts, they knew that they wanted to do something around crack. This was Obama's DOJ um, under Eric Holder. But it goes to show, you know, despite the fact that we've come so far in some, in some regards in our attitudes about the criminal justice system, that we haven't come far enough, right? That we can accept that they are the same drug and that we, that, and and that they should get the same amount of time for possession. Um, and it's something that I would like to see out of, you know, me, me publishing this book. Hopefully we can start a conversation about eliminating that disparity entirely.
0: Right. And like, you know, decriminalizing drugs or whatever. The Kurt Schmoke line. Yeah. I mean, that's like the real goal, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: I mean, and, you know, yeah. it, um, addiction is a public health issue. That right. That drug epidemics are public health issues that they, you know, are happening to groups of people at a time because of factors that have to do with more than just a person's willpower. And And, right. um, you know... The criminal legal stuff is expensive and it's just never worked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk more about this. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back on the same topic. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, we're back. Back to talking about criminalizing and drugs and everything. Um, I feel like with, I mean, with Kurt Schmoke, was the uh, mayor of Baltimore, black mayor, uh, first elected black mayor, young guy at the time, Like sort of, you know, the way that you set it up in the book and my understanding is that he's sort of like this great black hope for this black city and that he comes in, I mean, honestly, at the worst possible time, knowing what we know now for any black person to take over a city, knowing that racism exists and the standard, the double standards and all of those things. He comes in and he's like, I'm going to fix education. And then then it's like, hey, guys, surprise, here's Coke. Good luck. And he pretty much right away is like, we should decriminalize this. And everyone is like, this nigga is tripping. <laughs> like, this is what's wrong with black people. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we just told you there's a drug epidemic and you said, let them eat cake. Um, and they rip him to shreds. They basically are just, they call him every name under the book. They make him this horrible villain, whatever. His constituents stick with him. He does three terms. As the mayor of Baltimore, through the crack epidemic, he is there into the beginning stages. As the whole thing is ending, everything is happening. He sticks by his lines. He puts together like commissions to try to figure out things. Um, the needle exchange program that now is like kind of commonplace. He's spearheads that. And I guess the question is, I guess it's more of a common or I guess a question observation We often talk about that was just the time and everybody in 1845 owned slaves, right? Everybody in Nazi or everybody in Germany was a Nazi, like they were just following orders. And then we get stories of people like Kurt Schmoke, who at the time, in the face of all of this other shit was like, no, this is treatment is great decriminalizing would be helpful. Here are some options. And I guess the question in all of that is like, what can we learn from Kurt Schmoke aside from stick to your guns? Like mm. what is the lesson in, in him and his service? And because it got bad in Baltimore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, um, Kurt, I, really just love as a character because he reminds me of like so many of the really nerdy guys that I went to Morehouse with. <laughs> and I should say that he, that he was so much more than a nerd, right? Like Kurt Schmoke integrates or helps integrate Baltimore city college, which is a high school in Baltimore. He was um, uh, captain of the football team, his junior and senior year took them to and one state championships, both of those years. He was senior class president. He, <laughs> you know, then gets recruited to play football for Yale. He stops a riot at Yale. and Right. Uh, oh,
0: right. That's my favorite story. That's yeah. great. That's great. <laughs> Got to uh, get the book for that one, people.
1: Right. You know, and like, and then the faculty is so pleased with him that they, you know, unanimously nominate him for a Rhodes Scholarship. He, you know, then goes to Oxford and to Harvard and he wants nothing more than to go back to Baltimore and become mayor. Given mm-hmm. all of that, right? So this is like right. super admirable guy. And, you know, he uh, reminds me of myself in that he thought that, you know, a good idea was a good idea. And right. that, you know, in that after having thought about it and done the research and his, you know, wife was a physician, that he thought that Baltimore, given all of its um, health resources and its public health resources, could be a model city for decriminalization. And especially with Baltimore, you know, which had, which was, you know, experiencing a crack epidemic, but it's always had a huge problem with heroin and and opioids, which Mm -hmm. uh, people then, you know, skyrocketing rates of HIV, uh, AIDS infection because of the intravenous drug use. He thought we can't afford to criminalize this. We have to have a public health response that, you know, gives out needles and, you know, helps people. And like you said, he was called every name, you know, in the book, including by people like Marion Barry, who right. said, like you said, this nigga's tripping. why would yeah. he you know think that the thing to do would be to like decriminalize drugs and
0: and Marion Barry was the black mayor of washington d c who was also using crack
1: yes, he ultimately you know was uh uh put in 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 prison for for cocaine possession, cotton you know on tape in a sting smoking crack and um You know, the lesson for me from Kurt Schmoke is that sometimes a good idea isn't enough. Sometimes Mm. it isn't enough to be smart and to make sense that that like a part of the work of 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 creating good policy is like building consensus and getting Mm -hmm. people knowledgeable and Mm -hmm. informed. Right. About the Mm -hmm. things that you're discussing, because fear is powerful and shame is powerful. And, right. you know, people ultimately chose their fear over a good idea.
0: Right. Okay, let's work our way up the political ladder. We go from city mayor to president of the United States. <laughs> we've got Nixon and we've got Reagan. We know from history, from I can't remember the guy's name, but one of Nixon's or a few of Nixon's people, they knew what the fuck they were doing They're, You know, we know that they're on tape talking about we can't say this. We have to say this. Like, we can't say nigger anymore. We have to say, you know, state's rights. And we know that they knew what they were doing in criminalizing marijuana and cocaine because or I think it was marijuana and heroin at the time because of counterculture hippies and because of urban centers. Like they were purposefully attacking people who were anti-war and then black people with this war on drugs. My question is about Ronald Reagan. How much do we feel like Ronald Reagan knew that playbook versus he was given that playbook?
1: Yeah. I think that Ronald Reagan, my like personal kind of assessment is that Ronald yeah, Reagan. Yeah, that's what I'm asking.
0: <laughs> I, I know that you don't know. I just I, it's just like something like because I feel like we put it on Nixon really yeah. hard. And then I know that Reagan did fucked up shit, but how much of this was just like, here you go, kid.
1: Yeah, yeah. That that um that playbook, you know, as you point out, goes back to Nixon at least. You know, right. Nixon's Law and Order War on Drugs playbook. You know, he only got to kind of taste a little bit of it because mm-hmm. he ultimately got, you know, impeached and then resigned from from office. But right. you know, it was completely picked up by Reagan and his administration because it was so it was starting to become so effective under right. Nixon and Reagan, as you know, the great communicator, um, was able to take it to lengths. And you know, that I don't think Nixon could have even imagined. One, mm-hmm. on like the policy level, right? Like the the sort of um, laws that came out under Reagan. But Reagan's real contribution to the war on drugs is this messaging that completely mm-hmm. uh, vilified and demonized anybody involved in drugs. And you know, one of the things that I uh, love to point out from my research that I found that I found to be really interesting is that, you know, the Reagans used their Hollywood connections. The fact that they have been in Hollywood, that they knew lots of people in media and advertising to completely infiltrate television during the 80s and 90s with anti-drug messaging. So, you know, you you get the very special episode of your favorite sitcom. Right.
0: Say by the bell, baby. <laughs> right. Not Jesse's popping pills. I'm so
1: excited. I'm so <laughs> yeah. excited. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, <laughs> or like, you know, Nancy Reagan is on different strokes or you know, there's even an episode of uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where Carlton, I think, is on some type of like speed at like a high school dance that
0: mm-hmm. all of that messaging
1: comes out of the Reagan White House. And they also set aside a tremendous amount of, fun- of funding for PSAs, an agency, the, uh, I'm kind of blanking on it right now, the Partnership for, for a Drug-Free America. Oh, so, yes, of course. So, you know, this is your brain on drugs. And, Ugh, you know, all of that commercials with stuff. the
0: egg. <laughs> with the egg, right? Oh, my God.
1: And, you know, some people would would credit that for anti-drug attitudes that sort of came later, but there was so much misinformation in those mm-hmm. ads, and there was so much harm created through the misinformation and through the ways that drug addicts were were presented. That mm. you know that like they were doing all of this additional harm, you know, because it was politically uh, uh right. valuable.
0: Right. I w- okay. We'll stay on the media though. I do have another Reagan question. Maybe later. I do want to say we're the same age. I'm eighty six. You're eighty seven. And. When I think back on my childhood and I think about those campaigns and also the way that um, AIDS was portrayed in the media, I, I can't blame anybody for my brain. But I do feel that a lot of my anxiety has come from the way that I was so scared to be in the world, like that by touching anyone or anything or speaking to anyone or like ever looking at a drug or anything that I would become, you know, a quote unquote crackhead or that yeah. like, I like, there's something about the way that, that those media campaigns that I've just started to think about more recently is just like, I was so scared of sex. I was so scared of drugs. I was so scared of alcohol that in a way that like feels maybe too far.
1: Un- unhealthy. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like a
0: neuroses
1: almost. Absolutely. That like we, you know, HIV AIDS crack predate us. Right. That we we never got to live in a world where those things didn't exist, which is a part of why I wanted to write the book and why the book starts, you know, in the 1960s, because I really wanted to know what our world was like before Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to just ground you know, uh, my, like, sense of things, but also to understand just how much was lost in terms of our ability to to connect to each other. And I think that, you know, like you, I was afraid of sex, I was afraid of drugs, but also I was afraid of other people.
0: Other people, totally, totally.
1: You know, and, and sadly, you know, as, like, a Black person that grew up in a Black neighborhood, I was afraid of other Black people in some ways. Right. Yeah. And I was yeah. also yeah. afraid of this idea that I would be confused as a crack baby or that people mm. would take me for a super predator.
0: And mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. this,
1: uh, you know, it was like, you know, it didn't just keep me away from drugs. It also poisoned my imagination about myself and about my neighbors. And, right. you know, all of that uh, is still being undone and unlearned. And, you know, um, and, and researching this book and ultimately writing it, you know, helped me kind of unpack some of that, you know, internalized bias that I had against right. my own community.
0: Right. And yeah, and I, and I think it does sort of like, it's, it definitely has stuck with me. Like, there are times where like, I will catch myself feeling a way that I'm like, that is like the weirdest thought to pop into your head about, you know, like, it's just, yeah. it was so formative for us, and like by the time we have probably memories about that stuff, it was like such a well oiled machine, right? Oh, absolutely. Like because like in the beginning it, there was, especially I mean around AIDS there was like confusion and there was not like, but by the time we're coming up in like not, the nineties, it's like oh this is what AIDS is and this is and like be scared, um, yeah. and 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 then I guess you know back to the book, the media, and crack had a very intimate and abusive relationship. (laughs) The media was horrible. Can you just tell people about Jimmy's world? Because I did not know about Jimmy's world. And that made my stomach hurt. So will you just fill people in about I think that's like also like quintessential crack in the media story like to kind of illustrate this abusive relationship.
1: So, you know, Jimmy's world, you know, I think of as kind of like this prototypical, you know, urban America drug story. And it (laughs) was written by a woman named Janet Cook, who was a metro reporter for The Washington Post. And it was about a uh, nine-year-old actually heroin addict named Jimmy in Washington, D.C. And the story was that Jimmy was he grew up basically in a heroin shooting gallery that his mom operated that they gave him 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 heroin to like calm down throughout the day, that he was the product of uh, incest, a, a a relationship between his grandfather and his mother, that you know really everything terrible that
0: his stepfather shot would shoot
1: him up with drugs. Right, right, exactly, right. And that um, the
0: That's Washington the part that
1: really stuck with me. <laughs> Can you I, tell? <laughs> I mean, because it's just wild, right? And like the Washington Post ran this on the front page of the paper in in the 1980s and uh it was a huge story right that caused like a big national stir and it turned out that the entire thing was fabricated it, it was, won
0: the pulitzer
1: Oh, yes. Right. So it, she that, won so, the
0: Pulitzer Prize. That's a
1: very important point to make <laughs> that Janet Cook won the Pulitzer Prize.
0: And she's a black woman.
1: A black woman from Toledo, Ohio. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also from Ohio. You know, she was a young reporter that she won the Pulitzer for. It. So a few things. One, it appeared on the cover of the paper without any images, completely with illustrations, supposedly because, you know, she was protecting her source. Mm hmm. That, um, that her editor um, never really fully investigated, right? Like, you know, as a journalist, at least your editor should know who an anonymous source is. Her editor had never met Jimmy, had never verified Jimmy's existence, that the paper at the time was being edited by Bob Woodward um, of, you know, the Watergate scandal fame, somebody that knows anonymous sourcing better than anybody. All of these people were so eager to tell this story that they put mm-hmm. aside all of their journalistic values and, and integrity, uh, ran it on the front page of the paper, despite the, obli- the, the the objection of other black reporters at the paper who said there's right. no way this is real. That it doesn't sound real. It doesn't sound like our community. We don't think Janet even has the balls to go into that neighborhood and actually find a Jimmy. And they And they chalked it up to, to professional jealousy. And then they nominated it for a Pulitzer Prize. It won mm-hmm. the Pulitzer Prize and then everything came tumbling down. Um, all because of another lie, which was that Janet had lied about being a graduate of ASSER and mm. they could not confirm that. So then they looked into the Jimmy story and you know, the truth came out and it is still today. The only Pulitzer Prize to ever be given back was this Pulitzer by this black woman who really wanted to make a big splash. And she knew better than anybody that the way to do that was with this completely anti-Black pathological story about Mm -hmm. a nine-year-old drug addict in DC. And it is um, still today, I think one of the most fascinating um, scam stories. Yeah. I mean, I would
0: read an entire book on it.
1: You know, and, um, you know, I am working on something.
0: Yes. (laughs) you heard it here first, people. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, but it is a really fascinating story, you know, and like to your earlier point, then, that even though this huge thing happens with Jimmy's world that should have really shook up the entire journalism industry, that the industry still went on to perpetuate lots of myths and lies about right. Black people and drugs, including the crack baby myth, right. which, you know, was this idea that um, cocaine exposure in utero would have these uh, uh, irreversible damaging effects on the development of, of, of children. And that's how you got the crack baby idea. Now, I should note, right, that it's important to say substance abuse or use while pregnant is bad, right? right. That it can do things like separate your uterus from the uterine wall. And then ultimately, a lot of women gave birth to premature babies that had tons right. of issues. But what the scientists were finding when they were looking at these so-called crack babies were things ac- actually associated with premature birth. Right. In it that, was like
0: they, there's no difference between a preemie and a baby who was exposed to crack who was also a preemie.
1: Right, and that this entire kind of generation of of young people went on to actually be healthy in most cases, but they lived under this cloud of you will always be. Irredeemably broken. Mm-hmm. That was the belief that a Washington Post columnist wrote that death would have been better for these children mm-hmm. than to have been born exposed to cocaine. And that's a, I mean, that's a lot, a wild thing to say. And it was commonplace, right, to say well, things like the- that.
0: I think what's interesting about the Jimmy's World story is like you're getting at. it's like you would think a story like that would stop a lot of this in the track in its tracks. But then, of course, there's capitalism and there's these newspapers that want to sell copies. And so then it's like, okay, this one was a lie, but let's go out and find a real Jimmy. Let's go out and find another salacious story. I mean, I didn't know this, but you say in the book that the television show 48 Hours is a spinoff of like, of crack reporting where it's like they were doing like 48 hours and like a crackdown. And then it just became the show 48 hours. Like that's yeah. a crazy origin story for a show. That's like so ubiquitous in American culture. It was just like, let's fucking find people and hang out with them for 48 hours and watch them do drugs and just fucking film it and just jack off to it. Cause we're so happy to see people dying.
1: That is exactly it. That we were caught that like the nation was caught in this moral panic where You know, this was entertainment and people were, you know, kind of getting their fix of, you know, true crime from what was happening in urban America. And, yeah, the show was originally called 48 Hours on Crack Street. And they just went around to watch people do drugs and talk to them about drug use. And then they did. It was such a big hit that a year later they did return to Crack Street. Of course. Gotta and go then, back. <laughs> you know? And then that launched, you know, a show now, which is like one of like the longest running news magazine programs, 48 Hours. Um, uh, you know, a ton of movies. Like there was a movie called Crack House that was, you know, put up, that was put in theaters in the 1980s starring the football player Jim Brown about right. a drug dealer and pimp that, you know, operates a crack house. And it was, it was a form of entertainment actually. Right. And I still right. think that, you know, in like the, sort of American imagination, that these stories about crack and crack use are a form of entertainment that, you know, I think so too. people laugh at the at, at the crackhead character or figure. Mm-hmm. People are excited and, you know, energized by the idea of drug kingpins. And mm-hmm. that, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote this book is because I think that there's so much context and meaning from the real stories that if people knew them that they wouldn't that the fake stories wouldn't have so much entertainment value
0: yeah oh yeah totally and i in the book you know we so the book starts at the beginning it kind of goes through chronologically and we kind of get to the end of the crack epidemic right and like there are still people who do crack there are still people you know like that is not it's not over the effects are still being felt but you kind of point out that most of the people who are still doing crack are people who were doing crack back then there's not a lot of like new crack users um but a lot of the media we were just talking about is white media mainstream media and some of the stuff that helped Bring down crack or like uncrack crack was community organizing civic organizations but also hip-hop music and i think yeah. that's really interesting because hip-hop music of course gets this rap and like hip-hop artists like you're glorifying drug use and you know jay-z sold drugs and he's trying to make it sexy and like all this stuff but you give so many examples about how hip-hop artists rap artists were actually like really pivotal in doing that and and i'm wondering like is that also true of other like Black media at the time? Were, was Black media getting it right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I got a new respect for hip hop and Black mm. media from reporting this book because, you know, I had grown up kind of hearing the refrain that hip hop was just, you know, kind of a mirror to like, you know, what's happening in the streets. And I always thought, mm, maybe that's a bit of a cop out because, you know, mm-hmm. any music, like any musical form can be like a mixed bag. But then when I actually looked at the record, what I saw was that there were hip hop artists that were rapping about the dangers of crack and drug use and drug dealing as early as 1982. And Mm. mainstream media didn't start focusing on crack until about 1987. So if you were a young kid growing up in the 80s, you were getting anti-crack messaging first from hip hop before you were ever getting it from nancy reagan or anybody else and then you know and, and this isn't just marginal right like conscious rappers you're talking about nwa with songs like dope man mc shan with jane stop this crazy thing public enemy night of the living Baseheads," you know comparing crack users to zombies which is extreme right but it's still anti-crack messaging um, and then you also see it in like the filmmaking, which I would sort of call hip hop filmmaking at the time. You have Spike Lee with movies like Jungle Fever, right? You have, uh, crack addict characters in movies like Menace to Society. Um, uh, I mean, like the list goes on and on and on of anti-crack messaging that was coming from black artists. A really interesting thing that I like to point out is that you have, um, uh, According to research done by the Department of Justice, that the crack epidemic really peaks around 1990. It plateaus mm-hmm. for a while, and it completely takes a nose dive around 1992. And it hasn't, you know, recovered. Rates of hard drug use among Black and Latinos hasn't, you know, haven't recovered since then. 1992, right, the year that it completely plummets, happens to be the year that Dr. Dre dropped the Chronic. And what you see, too, is that that same year of marijuana use among young people's skyrockets. Hmm. So, you know, my theory is that when it came time to experiment with drugs, mm-hmm. that a new cohort of young people decided, I don't want to touch this stuff that has been so devastating in my community. Right. But my favorite rapper on this really one of the greatest albums of all time is sort of extolling the wonders, right, of marijuana. And you see marijuana use take off. Um, that to me is fascinating, right? How like that kind of like intervention, so to speak, right, can like completely change the um, the sort of direction of a community. And um, And it is important to point out that communities of color did not get any help for the crack epidemic besides criminalization. So when it came to actually ending the cycle of addiction, that part, that was something that we did ourselves by Mm -hmm. making different choices, by creating programs in our communities to keep people alive and to help people get clean. It was, you know, grandmothers taking in grandchildren while Mm -hmm. their kids were out in the streets. It was churches doing, you know, uh, gun buybacks. It was young people saying, eh, I'm actually good on that. I want right, to do something right, right. else. And, you know, no, we didn't have, you know, huge programs that completely changed things overnight, but we kept each other alive. And right. that for me is like, that's what community is. Community is not, you know, big programs. Community is how we keep each other alive. and mm. uh, And that is like the ultimate message of the book is that the kinds of investments that we made are into each other should, should have been and should be bolstered by Mm -hmm. greater society, by the government. Mm -hmm. That when Mm -hmm. we look at something like the ongoing opioid epidemic, we shouldn't be trying to recreate the will. We should look at who's doing the work in communities right now
0: and Mm -hmm. how can
1: we support them? If it's grandparents taking in grandchildren, how can we, you know, give them some, some assistance to make that easier instead of breaking up families, you know? If it's community organizations that are, you know, busting up, you know, places where folks are doing drugs, how do we support and protect them in doing that work instead of just saying, let's send in the police and lock everybody up? Because right. that doesn't fix it. All that doesn't does work. is create room and then new new dealers and new users move in.
0: Right, right. This is like such a hard shift, but I have to ask you this. I ask everybody, what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try?
1: Restaurant. <laughs> oh, you're in the restaurant club. You, so
0: the restaurant club is a very famous, well-known club here in the stacks. It includes people like Angelina Jolie, Quentin Tarantino, Jason Reynolds, and now you. So the restaurant club, there's other people in it. I can never remember, okay. those are the big three. But welcome to the restaurant club. Uh, oh my God, Tracy. You know what
1: it is? I I struggle... So bad with like the French language. I mean, like, mm. I can't pronounce anything French barely. Okay, okay, and I can't okay. spell anything with French origin. So I'm, I'm actually it. surprised about Angelina Jolie. See, she has to get her, she has to dig back into her roots
0: and yeah. see if she can bring some yeah. of that French
1: back. But <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. And how do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often? Music or no? At the house? Out of the house? Snacks? Beverages? Rituals?
1: Talk I, about it. I like to write um, in the middle of the day with complete silence for really no more than three hours. And I write best if I write on a blank page. So when I was writing- No lines. Well, no, I mean, when I was writing when crack was king, I could not open up the Word document and then continue where I left off. I see. Because my inclination is to read at least like the last three pages. And then I end up just editing. I had Mm -hmm. to open up new Word documents in order to get it done. Or I had to open up an email and send it to myself as a way okay. of generating that urgency.
0: Huh, I love that. Snacks or beverages?
1: Oh, every beverage under the sun. I mean, give okay. me five beverages at a time. Give me a coffee. Give me a seltzer. Give me a, uh, just like a still water. Give me a soda. I need what to be kind able- of soda? I'm a Diet Coke person.
0: Uh, me too. Also a famous club. Includes myself and Samantha Irby, famously.
1: You know what? So like, this is like the dream lunch, right? Uh, chicken Caesar salad, or maybe a shrimp Caesar salad.
0: Okay. Okay. I love a Caesar.
1: Very hot French fries. Thin okay. French fries.
0: Okay. When are we going out to lunch? This <laughs> is are like going? totally
1: my vibe.
0: Okay, okay,
1: And then a Diet Coke with a lot of ice.
0: Okay. Fountain Diet Coke is my personal favorite. Okay. Like going to 7-Eleven and getting a Fountain (laughs) Diet Coke with the like straw. Mm, 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 Yeah. mm, The best. Yeah. I love this. I love this. Okay. We're like so out of time, but I have a few questions I have to ask you. One is what is not in the book that you wish could have been?
1: Mm, What's not in the book? I mean, it's a big book. Let me say like there's a lot of stuff in the book. Um.
0: You can say nothing also. If you feel like <laughs> everything that you wanted to be in the book made it into the book.
1: Well, you know what, and this, and I'm not just saying this to like, to pander. I wish that I could have included more women in the book. Mm-hmm. Namely, there are some very interesting stories of women dealers. There's a woman named Thelma out of Philly who mm-hmm. was an actual queen pin. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that there were, women dealers, that women, you know, weren't just the addicts, that there were women leaders and like community folks that had incredible interventions. Um, It's just that, you know, a lot of those women were just reluctant to talk to me because Mm -hmm. those periods of time were so scary in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I really uh, lucked out that I was able to connect with Lenny, who, you know, not only was so open, but who trusted me to handle her story with like a level of sensitivity.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. For people who love this book, what else would you recommend to them that's in conversation with what you've created?
1: Ooh. I think people should read The Warmth of Other Suns. Yeah. Because I sort of see, at least I hope that When Crack Was King picks up where The Warmth of Other Suns kind of leaves off. I think people should read The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Jabra Muhammad, which is really sort of an academic book about the ways that Black identity became associated with like a criminal identity. Mm-hmm. I think that people should read uh, The New Jim Crow mm-hmm. because uh, Michelle Alexander kind of really gets into like the, the, the policy kind of implications of the crack epidemic. And then finally, I want to say that people should read a, a book called S Street Rising, which is by a former Washington Post journalist named Ruben Castaneda. Who covered crime in D.C. during the '80s, and also during that period became addicted to crack.
0: Mm. I'm going to throw in a book because I accidentally read your book back to back with this book, not knowing that they were connected. But you know Alta Adams, the restaurant. Yes, absolutely. And you know Keith Corbin, the no. one of the owners. He's the black guy who owns the restaurant. Okay. He was a Grape Street crip. He was cooking crack for years. He's our age as well he and he eventually goes to prison for like an armed robbery or something obviously his story has a happy ending because he's now the owner of Alta Adams yeah. but As I literally finished your book and started his book right after, and it was wild because he was talking about the same shit and he's like explaining how he was cooking the drugs and like how much baking soda and how he used water because it made it heavier and like all of this shit. And also talking about being a young person and like going to these old heads like because he's, you know, it just, it's like such a perfect fit for what you did, like a really personal experience. Um, And I was like, kept turning to my husband and being like, this is so fucking weird because these books are like <laughs> book siblings. Um, I want to ask you this, this is not a question that I normally ask people, but I know this about you because you've posted it on social media and it's also in the afterword of your book. This book took a huge toll on you, physically, mentally, like your health. You had to like, you know, you had to have health things which you can share or not. So, given all of that, going in, so we're talking a, a few days before your book comes out. What is it feeling like for you now knowing this book is going into the world? Like, is it, is it exciting? Is it, are you nervous? Does it feel like, I don't know. Just what yeah. is that like for you?
1: This book has taught me so much. Um, you know, as you said, it, it, it took a lot from me for a period. I, I started the book in about 2018 and I spent years with, with this subject matter, which can be really, really heavy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, kind of just like absorbing these stories, um, it raised my anxiety through the roof. And I've, you know, always been an anxious person and my Mm -hmm. work has always been a source of anxiety, but it was both the work and the, and the stories. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it got to be 2020 and I was still working on the book and the world was falling apart and I would sit down to write and I would break out in hives from head to toe. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then I started losing weight. I could barely eat and I lost about 40 pounds. And -hmm. then I got heart palpitations and had to wear a heart monitor. And uh, what I realized is that as I was trying to make sense of everything that I was learning, my body was like metabolizing the trauma. Mm. And something that I had to do was I had to take breaks. I had to care for myself. I had to create practices that were restorative and healing. And, you know, as like hard and scary as that period um, was, I realized that this is actually a part of the work that anybody that survived this era mm-hmm. should have access to,
0: right? Mm. That like, that like
1: people need to heal in ways that we don't even know that people are carrying it around. And for me, it was just kind of, uh, squashed together in like a really short period of time. It was like condensed. Right. And other folks are walking around with this tiredness, with this weariness, with this anxiousness. So, you know, I decided to write about it. One, for anybody that's going to write a book <laughs> to know that right. like it is hard, it is taxing. And then also for people who might connect to the story to say, hey, you're probably carrying around some of this too. And you mm-hmm. should check that out before it takes a toll on you. And, you know, I'm out on it, you know, on the other side, um, wishing that I hadn't gained some of the weight back, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but also like, you know, that, that being a symbol of the, of the uh, extent to which like I'm getting well and I feel mm-hmm. really good and I'm like excited mm-hmm. for people to read it and to have conversations about it. And it feels like, like a relief.
0: Mm, I'm yeah. so glad. Okay, last question: If you could have one person, dead or alive, read "When Crack Was King," who would you want it to be?
1: Ooh, I would want my uncle Walter to read "When Crack Was King." My uncle Walter was somebody that dealt with addiction for most of his life, and um, you know he died way too early. I think because of the impact that addiction just had on his body. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he ever felt seen and understood or even if he understood why those things were happening to him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and I would love for him to read the book and then for us to talk about it. Mm.
0: All right, everybody. You can get When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era by Donovan X. Ramsey. It is out in the world now as you are listening to it. I, it has my huge stamp of approval. I loved the book. I, Donovan, this was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Tracy. And I can't wait for us to get that lunch.
0: Oh my God, I can't wait.
1: <laughs> we'll set that up immediately.
0: Um, and everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Donovan X Ramsey for joining the show. I'd also like to thank Andrea Pura for helping to make this conversation possible. Don't forget, The Stacks Book Club pick for July is Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. And we will be discussing that book on July 26th with Joel Christian Gill. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join The Stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating or a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok, and now Threads, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCreight, and our theme music is from Tagirajus. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.